Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. For those of you happening across our broadcast, podcast, webcast, or uh, whatever cast we may be. We're not, we're, we're not in a cast, so that's good. But uh, for you joining us, uh, it's our daily journey through God's Word. One question of the heart at a time, and that's obviously where you come in. It's your questions that determine the content of each and every edition of the uh, broadcast, so uh, we're looking forward to hearing from you. Any question about the Bible, any question uh, that you have about a passage in the Word of God that you'd like to explore, maybe uh, controversies surrounding different takes on biblical verses that uh, you would like to dig deep into. We would love to be able to deepen and encourage you to deepen your own walk with God's Word each and every day. Uh, so uh, get on in with those biblical questions. We're looking forward to those. Uh, maybe you'd like to find out how to apply God's Word to the uh, personal challenges you're currently facing, or maybe even asked a tough question or have always wanted to ask a tough question about the Christian faith, but have never found a non-judgmental, no harm, no foul uh, uh, place to uh, get these questions answered, uh, please uh, feel free to join on in. The events of the day, and boy, there's a lot of them percolating there. We've spent a lot of time this week uh, dealing uh, with a lot of these issues uh, that have been going on, but if there's an event of the day that you'd like to talk about from a biblical point of view, or even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy, all over it. But uh, it is your questions that set the agenda for each and every edition of A Reason for Hope. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Joined here by my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richard. Sean, how can people get their questions to us? Well, if you want to join us on Facebook, I would not recommend it because they took down one of our videos yesterday discussing controversial topics. We want to, however, <laughs> encourage you to join us on our we, website. We keep, we keep uh, warning you, but uh, yes. people don't, don't listen to it. It was inevitable. Yeah. Uh, but you can join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. Domain names are hard to come by in brevity. But nonetheless, if if you click on that page and the purple bar, the Watch Live tab on the top of the screen will direct you to another page, ccftucson.online.church. That way you know it's been sending you to the proper place. There we will be live streaming as well as counting down to our next broadcast where you can engage with us live face-to-face -face or in anticipation of the broadcast in your respective time zone. We'll also be looking again at the right side of the screen where you can leave your questions to us in comment form, as well as our YouTube page for now at A Reason for Hope. We are live streaming there as well, and if you want to join us, you'll have the benefit of being notified when we are going live. But note, since we don't control the, uh, I guess ability to communicate as much as we'd like to on these platforms, we want to recommend that you join us on our website because they can't obviously uh, access on our own platform. I'll be uh, disputing... <laughs> yeah, yet. I'll be disputing the uh, takedown on our Facebook page, but if you would care to join us there eventually, maybe they'll get bought out by somebody and sort this out, wink, wink. Um, the Facebook page is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, but as you'd imagine, I don't recommend that at the moment. Who knows what we'll be going through in the next couple weeks. But with that being said, 
Note that if you want to send us your questions, the three standards for the broadcast are sincere Bible questions. Sincere, meaning you want to hear the answer. The Bible yeah. is the <laughs> ultimate that's, that's goal. That's place to start. Yeah, the no. goal of the conversation, that the question that you ask will lead us to the Bible, not outside of it. And then, of course, that the Jeopardy rules are applied here, that you ask your question and they form of a question. We'll be happy to engage with you as long as those standards are met, and we'll be looking forward to engaging the topics that you bring up during the broadcast. But of course, anything that you bring up will be uh, ultimately meaningless if the Holy Spirit isn't equipping us to give a reason for the hope that is within us as well. So why don't we pray, invite him to be a part of the broadcast, and see where he takes us. Yeah, Lord, thank you that you promised that when the Spirit has come, He will guide you into all truth. And Lord, that is one of the greatest, most wonderful blessings of our walk with You, for You to take Your Word and deepen it, make it more meaningful, uh, help us to, helping us to understand it uh, more in its uh, context and to have a solid foundation we can stand upon when the storms of life, and boy, there's so many of them out around us now, Lord, We need that foundation that only your word can provide. So, Lord, we ask in the name of Jesus, you would take this broadcast, you would take it all over the world, uh, allow those who need to be a part of this to hear your word spoken in truth. Uh, And we pray, Father, that uh, the upshot of what we do here would be you, through your spirit, edifying, building up, exhorting, uh, applying, and, uh, Lord, comforting your people with your priceless promises that you give to us. Thank you, Lord, for the joy that we have in doing this today. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. Now, starting us off, we have a question sent along to us on our website from Renee, who is uh, not only sending along her prayers, but her support for the broadcast, which we uh, appreciate, but also a question from Isaiah, who uh, wants to know, what does it mean to groan in the Spirit, in reference to what Jesus did in John 11, 33? Obviously, it wasn't a positive experience, but when Jesus expressed it, what was the context, and what, of course, was he reacting to? Yeah, it's a great question. The the term groan, as uh, we would understand it in English, is pretty much the same thing that we get in Greek. It's an expression that describes um, an expression vocally that indicates a depth of emotion that is so intense that articulating words just isn't going to fit the bill. Uh, And so in John chapter 11, we see the uh, context for Jesus uh, exercising that kind of groaning. Uh, He has uh, come to the memorial service for his, uh, one of his best friends here on earth, a man by the name of Lazarus. You might recall that uh, Jesus delayed his coming, even though Lazarus's sisters sent word to Jesus that uh, Lazarus had been sick. Uh, Lazarus' sisters didn't understand the delay. Uh, they asked if, you know, again, saying, if you'd been here, our brother wouldn't have died. Uh, but even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the upshoot of it all is that Jesus uh, told them that he was the resurrection and the life, and that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. All of that uh, is, uh, is to give us a very important and vivid understanding of what's going on here. The passage uh, that you are referring to, to here uh, is a very interesting one indeed. Jesus goes uh, with Mary, or goes with Martha 
to the tomb where Lazarus was, where the, the mourners were weeping. It says, then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you hadn't have been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. The word troubled is uh, the same Greek word that we get our term agitation from. Have you ever seen the agitation cycle in a washing machine? That's what is being described here. And he said, where have you lain him? Uh, and then he said, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. John chapter 11 and verse 35 tells us. Then the Jews see how he loved him. And some said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Now understand, the groaning that Jesus is expressing here is a groaning, not of uh, some kind of an emotional breakdown that Jesus himself was having, but a groaning of empathy that he was having for those who were coming face-to-face with what the Bible calls the last enemy, that is, death. Uh, when Jesus saw uh, what uh, vividly and firsthand what death had done to God's previously good creation, he had a decidedly emotional reaction about that. And, and really, that's uh, a very important insight uh, for us to take hold of, because a lot of people, uh, when they experience, say, the death of a loved one, and they think of how God looks upon a scene like that, they imagine that God is distant, that God is aloof, that because God sees the end from the beginning, he can't enter in emotionally to uh, the circumstances that we're going through. And the fact of the matter is this passage in John chapter 11 tells us that nothing could be further from the truth. Although Jesus groaned within himself, and we are told uh, later on that he was moved with anger over what was uh, was going on in this set of circumstances. Understand, Jesus could have an emotional reaction to death without being angry with himself. Uh, death is something that uh, God never intended uh, man to experience. Uh, we were told way back in the Garden of Eden that uh, if we disobeyed God in the Garden, that the consequences would be dying, that we would die. Uh, The emphasis there in Hebrew is not just saying, boy, you're going to get death with a capital D, but there would be physical death and spiritual death as well. This is why Jesus came, to defeat this enemy once and for all, spiritual death and physical death, through his death and his resurrection. Uh, As we receive Christ as our Savior and receive the gift of forgiveness and eternal life and reconciliation uh, from God, Uh, we actually pass from death into life, the Scripture says. So spiritual death is taken out of the way. Eventually, physical death will be dealt with as well. When the Lord comes back, we go to uh, either go to be with Him spiritually, but when He comes back, uh, we are going to receive resurrection bodies, which will never know decay or death ever again. So this idea of Jesus groaning in this set of circumstances shows how emotionally invested God is, and it ties directly into another passage of Scripture that tells us that Jesus isn't cold and distant and aloof. We're told in Hebrews chapter 4 that uh, we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but one who's been tested in all ways as we are, yet without sin. 
uh, one of the reasons that Jesus lived 33 years in this world in uh, what I would say not optimal circumstances, certainly uh, not in a palace. He was even born in a barn, really, what it comes down to. He knew uh, the cramping restrictions of poverty. He knew uh, what it was like to be uh, misunderstood, even by his closest family members. He knew what it was like to be betrayed by those closest to them. He knew what it was like to suffer physical pain and physical harm. He even knew the horrors of death, and death dealt with arguably the most cruel form of capital punishment ever devised, and that is crucifixion. As Dorothy Sayers, the famous uh, writer, once put it, when Jesus was a man, he played the man. He kept his own rules and played fair. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, he has gone through everything that we've gone through. And so when we see this groaning going on, it's the groaning of empathy. It is the groaning of not just sympathy, but actual empathy with the pains and the trials we go through, including facing the greatest enemy we will ever face, and that's death. Yeah, and just to understand the, I guess, vividity of Jesus' expression of groaning in the Spirit, the, in the original language, it describes the snortings of an angry horse. So these weren't reserved, by the way. So just note that for the situation, and let us know if that helps you out. Um, question, anything more to add? No. A uh, question from Renee. Uh, this was asked yesterday, but we had two minutes to deal with it. We wanted to give more. She's currently attending a women's Bible study, but would like for it to be open to men as well, with a male to teach. She's been praying for the Lord to send someone to teach the men. It's been three months, so she wants to know what to do to keep waiting, open up for now for both men and women together, and teach one Bible study, etc. Sister Renee. Well, thank you, Renee, for the question. Obviously, there's room for any... Bible teacher to teach any sort of crowd. There are ministries that are geared towards women, and that's not in any way unbiblical. In the book of Titus chapter 2, there's a special emphasis that women should be teachers of good things along with men, but with the exclusive ministry, men can't do this, of teaching other women, of exhorting young women to be chaste homemakers, to be, uh, well, basically models of Jesus to them and their own families and their own world. In a a one-on-one discipling mode. Yeah. yeah, and noting that point as well. In the context of teaching, people will sometimes go so far to one direction that they'll come to a conclusion that has biblical demerit, if you want to use the term. And this is something that we've emphasized a lot this week. We don't question that people have verses to back up their ideas, but when the idea leads to a conclusion, you want to test that with other right. scripture. Right. And if it conflicts with that, that's called interpretation, sound hermeneutics. So when we're talking about the controversy of, but isn't it true that women aren't allowed to teach? And it says in Second Timothy chapter, or First Timothy rather, chapter 2, got the numbers mixed around there, in verse 11, oh, 11, we're pretty far into this chapter, aren't we? Yeah. Maybe we should obviously start where the conversation began. Verse 8, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or golds or pearls or costly clothing. Notice, not which is sinful, but 
which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Now, verse 11 goes on to note, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Then goes on to explain why. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So this passage on its own, there's usually three directions that people come to, none of which have, uh, I guess, biblical support in the conclusion. But the passages are clear, that's why this gets so complicated and sticky. So first of all, and this is in your context, Renee, the question substance is, can a woman's Bible study welcome in men, or would that be difficult if a woman is teaching men? Because note it says in the second half of verse 12 (laughs) that a woman is not to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now, people will emphasize usually a third of this verse and say that basically covers the whole shebang. They would say, women are not allowed to teach, full stop. They are to be in silence. Skipping, of course, the clarification that it says also to have authority over a man. So what is it? Is it they are not allowed to teach in any circumstances? They're not allowed to teach in the circumstance that they would exercise authority over a man, or they're just not allowed to speak at all. They would emphasize one of these portions of this passage. And of course, miss the whole point that this conversation began in verse 8 and continues on to verse 15. Obviously, we wouldn't divide fellowship over this. We'd just encourage other fellowships to allow liberty as they see fit. But the emphasis of of more evidence is the one that we want to side with. So if the conclusion is the first third of this verse, I do not permit a woman to teach, period, full stop, no women in any teaching position, period. Titus chapter 2 would disagree with you on that. It says that women are to be teachers of good things. They're not to teach or have authority over a man. Now note, we have two-thirds of the passage, so we're getting there. That's Titus back up that conclusion. Well, it would in the sense that the kind of teaching they're permitted to do is also the kind of teaching that men aren't permitted to do. Women can teach other women. They can disciple other women in ways, and more effective ways, by the way, that a man could. It doesn't mean that a woman can't sit under a man's Bible study that's not in that text. Right. Nor is it um, necessarily clear that a man can't ever listen to a woman teaching a Bible study. Women can read just like men. But the point being made is this. If I take two-thirds of this passage, am I getting warmer, (laughs) colder, or have I completed the game entirely? I'd say warmer, but we're not done with the passage. So continuing on, but to be in silence for... Now, what's the for, therefore? It's explaining why they're to be in silence and in what setting. Adam was formed first, then Eve. So does it mean that seniority of the male gender is what determines their authority? Obviously not. We have examples of women in roles of leadership out of necessity, for example, in the book of Judges and in the book of Exodus. Deborah and Miriam are examples of that. So it's basically, once again, just taking a section out of context and misapplying it in ways the Bible doesn't support. We continue on. In verse 14, it says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Then they would go, Okay, full stop. 
Notice the problem here. Full stop, this means that the man is completely free in this regard, that because women are the deceived class, they have no position in any teaching authority in Scripture. We already discussed half of that problem, but notice when we go to Genesis chapter 3, what did Adam do? Was he not deceived? Certainly, he willfully rebelled. Right. So it's not a matter of sinlessness versus perfection as a qualification for leadership or biblical teaching. It's noting an order, a structure to the church, which, by the way, wasn't man's idea, but it is the bride of Christ, right. something that he created to function in a specific way. So going at this piecemeal, Renee and all of those who I'm sure get this brought up a lot in very interesting and very heated dialogues, the emphasis of the passage and the way it was concluded is not that women, in the context of the church or the Bible as a whole, aren't allowed to talk the last third of that passage is not applied that way. In fact, we have several individuals mentioned in the church who are regarded not only as essentially co-leaders like Priscilla and Aquila, but also the daughters of Philip who were known as prophetesses. That means they spoke and taught the Word of God. So noting that point, how can we apply this? The answer is consistently. More evidence, not less. And if my conclusion requires a third or even two-thirds of a verse in a verse 8 to verse 15, seven-verse-long conversation, I'm going to miss some things. Right. So when it comes to the structure, the purpose of the church, and specifically regarding Renee's Bible study, A, would it be wrong, and this is, again, making sure our conclusions are biblically accurate, if would we be wrong for a man to sit under a woman's Bible study? Now, that's the full context. We don't know if she's the senior pastor. We don't know if the church is a matriarchal structure or something like that. We only know that someone with two X chromosomes is presently reading and clarifying the Bible. What would disqualify someone, at least in common sense, for not attending that study? I'd say if the Bible is not being taught accurately that would be a start. If, on the other hand, you were to say, but the church is supposed to be done decently in an order, and this order is clearly clarified, okay, what is that order? Please tell me. It says, well, look at the third of this verse, or look at two-thirds of this one verse. What about the other seven? That's the problem we have with this. So when we're talking to people about this, there's two directions people go. They'll go full egalitarian and say men and women are exactly the same until you ask any biologist or note the second chapter of the book of Genesis and note that God made the male and female, not that mankind was introduced and how dare you note a difference. Or Ephesians chapter 5, where the roles in marriage are delineated as being different, but co-equal. Yeah, so yeah. notice a difference of purpose is not a diminishment of value, and this is also important when it comes to our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. I have a very awkward conversations with people who outright deny the Trinity. And the man I was speaking to, he had his sons there with him, and just like with the illustration we have here, I looked at his beef and contention, by the way, I wasn't just non-sequitering this in. His contention was, Jesus is the Son, not the Father. Are you saying that God's inferior to himself? And I said, well, is your son an inferior human being to you? And I was making that clarification because what? We believe that the Father and the Son have a relationship, but they don't diminish 
what they are in that relationship, just because there's a structure to the relationship within the Trinity. A father and a son, the son submits to the father's authority, like we saw in the incarnation, that doesn't mean that Jesus is somehow a sub-God in obeying him. It right. means there is a structure to the relationship. No more than if I were to go on too long in this conversation, you were to interrupt and maybe uh, clarify some truths that I had skipped over or maybe some facts that I had misrepresented. I'd submit to you not only as my senior pastor, but also as my father. Now, does that make me lesser of a human being than no, you? No, Which is what yeah. then brings us to the second view, complementarianism. Roles in relationships are different, but roles don't determine value, and that's what we need to clarify. If a woman has a role of a Bible teacher, then I hope the Holy Spirit has called her to it, because that's the source of sound prophecy. See 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. But if, on the other hand, she was, uh, say, called by the Spirit to be a senior pastor, I'd ask questions and say, well, are you in a position where no man is available, that no one in your fellowship is being discipled or equipped by God to follow the standard (laughs) procedure, the usual routine of what God has essentially set up as a structure for his church? If they'd say yes, then I'd say, oh, Okay, well, I'll pray for you. I hope that someone locally is risen up to that role, and until then, I hope the Spirit equips you for this role. It would be like Deborah in the time of Judges, once again. But if, on the other hand, they were to say, no, we we don't allow men to hold positions of leadership here, we feel that's sexist, believe me, I'm sure you'd have these conversations today, and we want to only allow women in order to uh, stick it to the patriarchy. Well, Okay, but that's more of a cultural dispute, not a biblical standard, don't you think? And these imaginary conversations can go all day long. But here's the point, Renee. If the goal is to teach the Bible, as long as it's sound, <laughs> it's accurate, and it's filled with the Spirit, equipped by the Spirit, and called by the Spirit, God bless them. Chromosomes don't matter. But when it comes to the structure of the church, that's different, and that's not necessarily what's being represented in a Bible study. So, are there places for women's only Bible studies? Completely. See Titus chapter 2. Right. Are there places for male leadership and maybe even women on church boards should they show competence in the financial aspects? Sure, I could have conversations about that. If someone were to say, only women pastors, I'd ask questions. They'd say, only male senior pastors. I'd say, yeah, I wouldn't really dispute that, but again, on what basis do you determine that? Your chauvinism or scripture properly handled. We don't want to settle for a third of a verse for a whole doctrine. So make sure that those are the things that you keep in mind, Renee, and as well to anyone else interested on this topic. More information is better than less. I'm repeating my points here so that we can all take this away simply and succinctly in a little note card format for the test. Make sure that more information is better than less. Make sure that your conclusions are as much tested as your approaches towards the Scriptures themselves, and note the strengths and weaknesses of your own assumptions and biases, because we all have them. If you'd prefer not to get caught in the sticky controversy of the Bible having a structure based on gender and your current culture or social groups don't really approve of that, well, then I wouldn't say it's a bad fellowship, but I'd say you need to have and think through these conversations you've already had before you start making new ones in light of Scripture. Right. 
And then falling back on the other issue, make sure that your biases, even if they lead you to right conclusions, aren't costing you the heart of God in the process. Because if you speak a true answer, but without the heart of God, you notice we regularly pray on the broadcast not only to speak your word, but with your voice and your heart, that's make, that's doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. We want to make sure that it is pure, that it is holy in our approach towards not only church structure and leadership, but any study and why we are attending or listening to someone. It should be because they speak the truth in love and because God's called them to it and equipped them for it. If not, then I'd say no one should be attending that study. Regardless of who's teaching it, the teaching is what matters. If we're talking about church structure, that's another topic. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I would say having uh, been in situations where this... Uh, very issues come up, Renee. Uh, I guess bringing it down into a uh, a practical point of view, got to be really careful that whatever decisions we make, uh, especially concerning a gathering together of God's people, which in essence is the church, uh, the 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 smallest, most uh, uh, succinct definition of what the church is, is uh, Jesus saying, "Where two or more would gather in my name." Uh, that's what the term church means. It means a gathering of God's people. And whenever the church gathers, we want to make sure that we do things decently and in order, as we're told in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, we don't want to allow pragmatism or even personal experience to trump principle when we decide to gather together in Jesus' name. And that's the key thing, in Jesus' name. How would Jesus want this uh, particular gathering to operate? Well, he would want it to operate according to the principles of his word. Oftentimes, we forget about that, and uh, we can uh, find ourselves in a situation like the one you described. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen people say, well, you know, this woman is a senior pastor here because there's no uh, gifted man who can uh, occupy the role. Well, more often than not, uh, what is really being emphasized there is that it's not that there isn't a man that can occupy the role, it's just that the woman seems to be more vivacious, more of a upfront person, or maybe even just uh, more uh, forward in terms of uh, presenting herself as a leader. That would be a really poor reason for a woman to say to occupy a role as being a teacher over men. Now, you know, in, in terms of a Bible study setting, if we want to make sure that we're covering our bases and making sure that we are doing things decently and in order, we are told that a, a woman should not teach or exercise authority over men. Now, some of us split hairs and say, well, you know, she can teach, but she has to be under somebody else's authority. In other words, uh, there has to be someone saying, oh, yeah, we're bringing this woman in, two thumbs up, she's under our authority. I've always kind of winced a little bit at that, because as soon as someone stands up in a Bible study and says, thus saith the Lord, you're speaking authoritatively. You're speaking as an authority. Nobody should teach a Bible study, for instance, if they don't know what they're talking about. So the minute a person occupies that role, they are teaching authoritatively. Because of that, you know, I believe in a circumstance like the one you describe, you know, you can all gather together in terms of experiencing, say, fellowship and worship together. Nothing wrong with men and women being in the same 
say, a home Bible study, and having a time of worship. But when it comes time to sharing the Word, uh, because it is a mixed group, uh, either a man needs to be in that teaching role in a mixed group, or, uh, like the one you described, Renee, it would probably be more in fitting taking all the scriptural principles into account and not falling into pragmatism to say, okay, we are going to uh, break up into a group of women and a group of men for a time of teaching. Now, if uh, this group comes back together and discusses what was shared in the, the, the Bible study afterwards, uh, just in terms of a sharing or what did you get out of it kind of a thing, uh, then, then that's fine. But for a woman to be in a position of authority over a mixed group of men and women, I believe uh, the, the, uh, the point of emphasis, the, the real onus, is on the person who says, oh, no, I, I think a, a woman ought to be teaching this mixed group. I won't name names, but some very popular uh, teachers in Christian circles. You know, I've gotten into some pretty controversial waters by starting out as, say, the woman teacher teaching a woman's Bible study, very gifted. Uh, women said, oh, you got to come and hear this woman, and so they start bringing their husbands, and so pretty soon you've got a mixed group of men and women teaching under a woman who is teaching authoritatively to men and to women. Now, people will say, is there anything wrong with that? Well, I think there is something wrong with that in that it departs from the clear teaching of the Word of God. And, uh, you know, when, when we get caught up in, in pragmatism and saying, well, this person is more gifted, or this person really wants to do this, or this person has giftedness in this area, we really like this person and we don't want to hurt their feelings, well, we're getting into some difficult areas there, because when Paul talks about men occupying that teaching role, women not to teach or have authority over men. Uh, as you, you pointed out, Sean, there are two reasons that Paul gives. First, the order of creation. That same order of creation is the same uh, uh, essential uh, framework for why men are to be the spiritual leader in the home and women are to be in a more supportive, submissive role, according to Ephesians chapter 5. The order of creation, it's not about culture, it's not about what works, it's the order of creation. Secondly, it's the effects of the fall. You know, it's really interesting that ever since the fall of man, we almost instinctively want to do the opposite of what God wants us to do. Uh, very interesting how uh, when God even spoke to the woman following the fall. He said, your desire shall be for your husband. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, even though she's going to have pain in childbirth, she's still going to want to have physical relations with her husband. Uh, the word desire is really interesting because in uh, Genesis chapter 4, God warns Cain that sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. In other words, that word desire carries the nuance of dominating or controlling or exercising power uh, over a, uh, a, a, uh, an individual. So in this case, Paul gives two very important reasons why a woman teaching a mixed group of men and women uh, really shouldn't be going down in the church. If uh, you're going to have a general get-together, you can have you know, a woman teacher, you can have a man teacher, break up those groups and uh, allow the men to be able to uh, teach men. Uh, Renee, if you're going to be teaching that group, you know, again, teach the women, go over the same passage of Scripture. But then you can come back afterwards and, you know, just have an open discussion. But as far as teaching authoritatively, 
Uh, some people will say, well, you know, Scott, you seem to be kind of splitting hairs here, making things a little bit more difficult. I would rather stand before the Lord someday and give a uh, justification for what I did in ministry based upon the clear teaching of the Word and, and not saying, well, you know, I, I, I just don't think it, it really matters or we didn't have a man around there. Well, what if there isn't a man around who can teach? Well, if there isn't a man around who can teach, well, then perhaps what God is saying, because there is no man around who can teach, uh, that uh, at this point he doesn't want a Bible study or a church group to be going. Uh, you know, there were situations like the ones that were mentioned uh, in the time of the book of Judges. Miriam, uh, you know, essentially led the women. Uh, and when she got too big for her britches and started telling Moses what to do, well, God had to bring her up short rather quickly. Uh, you know, as far as uh, Deborah in that set of circumstances, it was because uh, there was nobody who was going to stand up. And, and uh, she basically said, you know, uh, Barak, because uh, you didn't stand up in all of this, uh, you're not going to receive uh, the blessings of God that you could have received had you stood up and done that sort of thing. So I wouldn't say using a situation like Deborah and, uh, and Barak and, uh, uh, again, Miriam and uh, Aaron uh, would, would be a really great proof text for uh, going ahead and doing something like this. Um, your mileage may vary. Nobody's not going to go to heaven based upon complementarianism or egalitarianism. Uh, in a sense, it is a side issue. But I think it's an important issue that we need to have well-thought-through scriptural convictions on. And so, uh, you know, these are generally the, uh, the principles that guide, you know, our decisions as far as Bible studies go at Calvary Christian Fellowship and Calvary Chapel in general. Uh, women have uh, spoken to large groups, missionary women. Elizabeth Elliot, for goodness sake, spoke to a uh, pastor's conference and, at uh, uh, Costa Mesa. And it was with the idea that uh, she was under the authority of the the uh, the leadership, and uh, the Pastor Chuck uh, gave her two thumbs up to be able to do that. Would I feel super comfortable doing that? Probably not. Would I divide fellowship over it? Probably not. But um, you got to do whatever you do based upon what the Word of God has to say. And if the goal of a gathering is to rightly divide the Word of truth, well, maybe the first rightly divided word of truth we need to go to is 1 Timothy chapter 2 and uh, Titus chapter 2 as far as uh, those roles that men and women should have in a Bible study setting. And, you know, and if we follow through on these, these roles, the church only benefits. Uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about uh, men, uh, you know, uh, women not teaching men, but Titus, as we mentioned, talked about uh, women teaching women and uh, counseling women. Being and, teachers of good things. And, uh, you know, I really do believe that a woman and a group of women are going to be better served, uh, not only being taught by, but discipled by women. And it's also a great safeguard because uh, when men and women get together and start talking about uh, spiritual things, very intimate conversation, you're sharing your heart. And it's very hard to do that without some bonding taking place, especially if, say, either the man or the woman is struggling in their relationships. Uh, and boy, I'll tell you, I can count on uh, both hands uh, the number of guys that I've known that were really sincere and wanted to serve the Lord and go into the ministry who are not in ministry any longer because they got involved in a counseling situation or a discipling situation or a leadership situation with a woman and uh, they ended up crossing lines they should have never crossed. Well, if we keep those things separate, 
Obviously, the goal is to teach God's Word. And someone will say, well, I can only hear God's Word from this person. Mm, You know, I'm not sure we're really interested in hearing God's Word at that point. You know, you, you don't have to hear God's Word individually from a senior pastor to hear God's Word in a counseling and discipling situation. Uh, so, uh, and neither should a senior pastor say, well, I'm the only one who can rightly divide the word of truth, therefore I need to be sharing that word, and uh, no woman can do as good a job as I can do. Uh, no, we just need to put those pieces of the puzzle together and understand God put them there for a reason. And I know complementarianism and egalitarianism is a huge debate. Boy, the Southern Baptist Church is roiled over this uh, right now. But whatever position we're going to take, remember, we're going to give an account of it before the Lord. And I would much rather give an account before the Lord that says, hey, I just try to do things by the book, in a sense, rather than kind of go, well, you know, this personality or this person was really gifted or in this situation we didn't really have X and such. You know, let's just trust the Lord. Uh, and uh, like I said, you can format a gathering like that where you can respect what the Scripture says about women teaching women, men teaching men, and still have, uh, you know, really solid fellowship uh, along with that. So, you know, I, I hope uh, that helps. Anything you'd add to that? Well, as a follow-through, Isaiah also wants to know regarding the common dismissal of these sort of controversies. Does that apply today? Or was that just Paul speaking to Timothy, or Paul speaking to Corinth? And the best example that I see of this, not only in action, but how it oftentimes gets misused, is, of course, in 1 Corinthians. But we'll be jumping to chapter 11. Before I do that, though, there's an important passage regarding the purpose of everything in Scripture, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, where all it notes scripture, all Scripture. All Scripture is, is inspired by God. And it's profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That word training in righteousness really does have an emphasis on how the church operates. Now, there are people who even will abuse that passage and say, oh, so what you mean is that in 1 Kings chapter 16, in verse 29, it says, the 38th year of King Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. Well, that is supposed to train us in righteousness. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying that books have meanings, and you find out meanings by reading the book. And if you find out that that's historical information, what is its application today for you to be instructed regarding that history? And even using that that silly uh, dismissal of all scriptures inspired by God, Boy, there's some really important life lessons you can learn from studying the life of Ahab. Yes, lessons yes. you don't want to learn, but there's a reason why his story is in Scripture. And that passage in Scripture explains to us that we're not talking about, you know, uh, once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away, uh, there was a guy named Obi-Wan Ahab, and we're going to talk about his mythic adventures. We're talking about a real king who made real decisions, who had real encounters with the true and living God that we can all learn from. But also noting as well, again, context matters, the application first needs to be understood in light of the definition of the text. Right. And if the text itself clarifies, this is addressing a specific custom, you can at least take away not the definition that's given, that's what's culturally relevant, but the application of that definition. So for example, in 1 Corinthians 
chapter 11, Paul deals with the topic of modesty, beginning, of course, with a very key verse we should all take to heart, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I'm not your model, he is. If I'm following the model, then follow me, because right. I'm following the model, right. I'm not the model. Yeah. So yeah. note that point. But he goes on then to say, now I praise you, brethren, that you remembering all things, keep the traditions as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For what for that which is for that is one and the same if her head were shaved. If her head were shaved. Now Context matters. He's speaking to the church in Corinth. Right. Very Greek equivalent to Las Vegas. They were into some Las weird Vegas stuff. Las Vegas would there. blush at Corinth. Yeah, but, Corinth yeah. was known for the Temple of Aphrodite, which essentially popularized and normalized child prostitution. It was messy. But when you wanted to identify a prostitute, how would you do that if they were a girl? Shaved head. That was a cultural definition. It's noting this is the mark of a prostitute in our day it would be immodest clothing or exposing various parts of your body to insinuate those kinds of uh, ideas. Right. The same thing for men. How would you identify a male prostitute? He would look like a Bee Gee. He'd have long hair, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interesting analogy, but go ahead. <laughs> Going into his relevance in day and making sure we have some levity here. But you're following the logic. That's the definition, but what's the application? He says dishonor in the context of prayer and worship. Now, where is that applied to us? Obviously, if I grow out my hair long, I don't know, maybe I'm trying to get ready for an anime cosplay or something. It doesn't mean I'm suddenly uh, taking up the um, my occupation of prostitution. Yeah, yeah it d doesn't have the same uh, overtones to it. Definition. Yeah. The meaning of long hair has changed culturally, but the application is the same. Should I come to church in a way that looks makes me look like a from prostitute. Yeah, or or distracts people from worshiping God. And that's the point. Now, covering of your head for women to wear veils and stuff, and this isn't referring to a burqa or even necessarily a hijab, and that's, we're not threatening to beat you if you don't have yourself uncovered because Abu Bakr said so. We're talking, that's the history by the way, we're talking about in Corinth how they would deal with women who came from this line of prostitution. I don't know if you've ever shaved your head before, but it doesn't grow back overnight. Right. And women having long hair, that's noted as a substitute for modesty in Jewish culture. Right. Paul as a Jew is speaking in this way, to have modesty to not only the Jews, but the non-Jews who are around you. Definition. Right. But what's the application? Not to be, as you said, a distraction in the context of worship and studying the Word of God. How is this applied? The same then as it is today. The motive, the meaning, the execution. Don't dress like a hooker. <laughs> but the definition has changed based on culture. Now, there will be people, and let me just finish the chapter so that you know that in the chapter itself it clarifies this. Verse 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, judge among yourselves. Is it, this is a question, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? If a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering, referencing that cultural understanding, right. the definition. But here's the application. If anyone seems to be contentious, to be argumentative, to be nitpicky about right. these things, we have no such what? Custom. 
It's addressing culture. In the chapter, it clarifies, and he right. says, nor do the churches of God. So if the chapter itself clarifies this is a cultural issue, it doesn't mean throw it out of the Bible. It only applied in the first century in a Greek province in what's known today as Turkey. On the other hand, if I were oh, to know... Greece, but yeah. yeah. Oh, co- yeah. yeah, excuse me, thank yeah. you. But the, the point then... They're close enough. Yeah. <laughs> the point yeah. then is being made. Uh, when we're talking about... Yeah, don't let the Greeks tell... Yeah. Here I said that. Yeah, we, we endeavor to be precise. <laughs> the, the point, though, then is being made, and this is something to really keep keen, Isaiah, is when people make that dismissal, you have to ask why. Are you dismissing the definition and saying that categorically needs to be understood because you're misapplying the definition and the application or being confused based right. on the lack of context? Right. Or yeah. are you using the context to muddle and cover away the definition, <laughs> the application, and the context you don't want to, I guess, uh, produce contentions over? There's a lot of people who are willing to compromise truth for peace the church shouldn't be that. And if there's a passage that notes that modesty matters, your the way that others right. view you, that sure. going into church, even if it's not your intention to draw that kind of attention, needs to be considered, it's the same point that Paul makes in other passages, say, for example, in the book of Romans, where it notes, be sensitive to the conscience of others. Well, I uh, make my brother stumble over something as trivial as food. This is in regarding the controversy of food sacrifice to idols. Now, it doesn't mean that you're evil for eating meat. It means that I'm using liberty, legitimate liberty, in order to do something that's affecting someone else negatively. And out of love is my motivation. I would willing to be self-sacrificial for their sake, even if it costs me something. And in the day and age where people are literally willing to commit murder for their own autonomy's sake, we need to make sure that we're not following with that trend. If we, and this is really important, handle the scripture consistently and understand that the definition is secondary to the application. One can help the other, but if I use the definition to hide the application, or um, what's the word I'm looking for, to make irrelevant, uh, to trivialize, that's yeah, the word I'm looking sure. for, yeah. the definition and the application, then you got a problem. Then you've got, I wouldn't say a false teacher, but definitely someone who's hiding something, and truth doesn't sneak. So make sure, Isaiah and whoever else is listening to this, that when people say, well, that was for that time, a yellow flag goes up, for those of you who know the European football term. Not a red flag, because that can lead to better conversations, but if they make the conclusion of the conversation on that basis, that is a red flag, because that's not how any text, historical, scriptural, poetic, or prophetic, otherwise should be handled. When the context is there, it's meant to emphasize an existing application, not a non-existing one. If we trivialize the scripture, that's a problem. If we overemphasize, like with the issue with 1 Timothy chapter 2, certain portions of Scripture leading to inconsistent conclusions, the context helps. But that doesn't mean that there is no application. And the application for this, for that, for this, and the other. For men and women teachers, there's certainly an application for that today. It's called church structure, church leadership, the order of creation that still applies today. How it's applied 
can be discussed intelligently. How it was intended to be applied can be discovered through a consistent and a disciplined and an objective study of God's Word, and we'll be accountable to the decisions we came to, because note, there are such things as wrong answers. I know that's not politically correct to say, but sue me. The point being made is that, though, is yeah. that definition and application aren't canceling each other out. They clarify each other. Right, right. So. Right, so let me know if that helps you out. Uh, question from Craig, who's been wondering about Jesus's death. Was he murdered, meaning unlawfully killed, or was he just killed? Was he just had his life taken away from him? Yeah, I, you know, it's uh, an interesting uh, series of statements that we find about uh, the death of Jesus. First of all, we need to understand more than anything else, it was not an accident. Uh, in fact, in the book of uh John chapter 10 and uh, verse 17, Jesus says, the reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, the authority to take it up again, this command I received from my Father. So, you know, maybe you've heard the old expression, it wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross, it was his love for us. It was the fact that he was dying in our place to pay the price for our sins uh, under the, the penalty that was due you and me. So it wasn't a tragedy of history. It wasn't because the scribes and the Pharisees and the, the uh, Sadducees got over on Jesus. It was because he willingly laid down his life. Now, very interesting, we we're also told some things about uh, the culpability of those who orchestrated the death of Jesus in the book of Acts, right? Right, and that was, of course, identified not just by the Apostle Peter, but several of the witnesses when they were brought before him. You had him crucified. Yeah, whose murderers you have become. And that's yeah. a point of emphasis. Yeah. Now, murder, again, is unlawful killing, and if you note the circumstances surrounding Jesus' arrest, it violated every law in the Jewish book regarding the apprehension of someone suspected of a crime, in this case blasphemy. Yeah. When they did it at night, that was not lawful. When they did so without, I guess, probable cause, they held the uh, trial for his arrest Forced at night. Forced Jesus to incriminate himself. Yeah, based yeah. on his words rather than as a representative, they held it on the same day that he was arrested, yeah. which was unlawful. Couldn't they, get witnesses to agree on the testimony. Literally yeah. every single yeah. available and cultural law regarding a lawful trial resulting in their killing was disqualified. So for them to orchestrate someone's death, that would be definition murder. And you can note the eyewitnesses on that conclusion as well. Yeah, and uh, you know, it, it reminds me of the question that comes up, uh, you know, was Judas Iscariot uh, responsible for betraying Jesus, uh, or uh, was he uh, a victim of predestination, that it was predicted that he would uh, betray Jesus? Well, and, it being predicted that he would do something doesn't mean he didn't do something. Yeah, and uh, I mean, Jesus made the statement, woe to the one who does this, it would be better if he'd never been born. Uh, so there's some people who say, well, you know, I mean, it was prophesied in the Psalms, you know, in Acts chapter one, they talked about how, uh, you know, this, uh, the, his, uh, even his death, uh, was, uh, was predicted and so on. And some people say, so, uh, Judas, uh, was, uh, you know, a part of prophetic history, you know, but did that make Judas any less accountable for his decisions? No, no because Jesus went out of his way 
to uh, give Judas every opportunity to be able to turn from that. He honored him as the guest at the Last Supper. He gave him the morsel dipped in the sauce as the first one. He uh, said to him, even when he came to betray him, friend, uh, do you betray the Messiah with a kiss? Gave him every opportunity to be able to turn. Uh, Judas turned down those opportunities and sealed his fate. So was it uh, prophecy? that Judas would betray Jesus, or was it uh, Judas's priorities personally? The answer to that is yes. Yes. So same thing. Uh, was it murder, or uh, did Jesus willingly lay down his life? The answer is yes. Yes. All right. A uh, question from Mac who wants to know, what was meant in John 8 when Jesus told the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more? Was it just that particular sin, since we all continuously struggle with sin? No, Mac, it was the same exhortation the Holy Spirit gives all of us every single day. Quoting Leviticus chapter 9 and verse 2, I know you have it memorized, be holy for I am holy. Yeah. What else could God say to someone other than the perfect exhortation? Exhortation. Now, note, do we follow that? No, we fall short every single day in every single way. But does that mean that he stops being gracious towards us? Also, no. He offers forgiveness. See 1 John chapter 1 and verses 8 through 10. The point then being made is this. If he told that woman, go and stop doing this particular sin or try to sin less in this regard, he'd be encouraging unrighteousness that would be in direct conflict with the nature of God, which is holy. But if, on the other hand, Jesus were to continuously call all of us, hey, go and sin no more. I'm here to restore you. It doesn't mean don't mess up again. It means, hey, let's do this again. There's another opportunity for me to live through you. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I think that's so right on. And, you know, when you take a look at what led into Jesus' statement here, it says, when Jesus had raised himself up, remember, he had stooped down and written on the ground, on a number of circumstances. What did he write? Well, see Jeremiah. <laughs> we see in Jeremiah that those who reject the fountain of living waters will be written in the earth. Uh, that writing in the earth may have included people's names and places, and the names weren't changed to protect the not so uh, innocent there. But we're told that uh, when he was left alone, uh, and the woman standing in the midst, when Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are these accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? That word literally means to judge you down. In other words, to uh, mark you guilty of uh, adultery and therefore should be stoned to death. Uh, she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, I think it's really important that Jesus included that there. It's one of the reasons that this passage sometimes is called into question as far as its authenticity goes, going all the way back to Augustine, was the idea that, oh my gosh, if this was really something that Jesus said, people are going to think they can get away with murder and they can commit adultery willy-nilly and just come back and Jesus won't condemn them. No, he said, I don't condemn you, but Jesus' forgiveness always results in a changed life. Uh, You know, I think about the uh, incident uh, where the sinful woman came and washed Jesus' feet and anointed him in the home of Simon the Pharisee. Uh, you know, Jesus said, the one who is, uh, is uh, forgiven much loves much. Uh, in, in other words, the love of Jesus had completely changed this woman's life. And, and so, also so we what, see that there. And what caused that change? What was the one word that she referred to Jesus as before he said, I don't condemn you? She called him Lord. Yeah. That's what makes all the difference in eternity. God bless you. We'll see you all again tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. 
thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.